Father in heaven, Lord, we truly are in awe of you. We're in awe of your mercy towards sinful men. Lord, we know that we are forgiven. We know that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, because of that, we do have hope. So Lord, as this brother comes before us to preach on that hope, Lord, may you open our minds to receive the word, open his tongue to preach the word. Lord, I pray that each of these messages would permeate in our hearts and our minds as we go home, that we would be able to be true men of the word, true men that follow your precepts, that love your law, that see you in the word. Lord, I thank you that we have this word that's been preserved for thousands of years through much bloodshed and sacrifice that we today have the liberty to each have a Bible in our hand to receive this word, to read this word to meditate on this Word. May we not take that for granted, but we would daily open these Scriptures to feast on them, to taste and see that it is good. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. He just whispered in my ear, take as long as you want. Not sure why he whispered it. Really am thankful to uh, see your faces and to just preach to you from Psalm 119. The theme is hope. The title is The Anchored Man. We'll be looking at four sections in Psalm 119. I'll list them for you. We'll go through them here in a little bit. 49 through 56, 73 through 80, 89 through 96, and then 113 through 120. But before we do that, let's just uh, just start by just personally taking a quick assessment, just a self-assessment of just where you are, where your heart is uh, right now. Um, compared to about four o'clock yesterday afternoon. So driving here at the end of a week of work or school, then where you are right now. Is there, is there a quieted heart, a, a more quieted heart? Do you have more resolve? Have you found some comfort over the last few hours? Do you feel to be more stable right now compared to 4 p.m. yesterday? What has happened in the last few hours is that you have been saturated with the Word of God, made to see the truly awesome nature of the living God. And what that produces in the heart of faith is hope. For me, it was when Brother Andy was reading from Deuteronomy 22 last night. I confess to you, I have never meditated on Deuteronomy 22. It's one of those drive-by book chapters that in my experience. I just realized that as he was reading it. But he asked us to read that passage in light of several things. Look at what God wants from you, but also... Discover something of the nature of God as you read this passage from the law. 
There was something about, as he read to us, about a man's ox falling over in the road and him saying, don't hide yourself. And I thought, is this speaking of how God has looked toward me? That when, as it were, my ox was fallen in the road, God has not hid himself. But he has extended himself in the most sacrificial way possible through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, that my ox may not lie dead in the road. Hallelujah. That's hope. Brothers, whatever your perceived need is this morning, and you drove here yesterday at four o'clock yesterday, you were probably, your mind was probably filled with your perceived need. Real needs, real conflicts, really difficult situations. Whatever your perceived need is, though, let me say this. Your first priority, your greatest need is hope. You must have hope. The New Bible Commentary edited by D.A. Carson and others says it this way. A lively hope is the basis for effective Christian living in every context. So wherever you are, a vibrant hope is the necessary ingredient. The basis for Christian hope is not wishful thinking about the future but the solemn promise of God. Hope is the motivation for faith and love. And the basis of our hope is the promise of God confirmed with an oath. So a lively hope, a lively hope is the power of faith and love. A lively hope is the necessary ingredient for for Christian living, for effective Christian living in every context. So what I want to do right now is I want to preach this message, hopefully in about 10 minutes, from Hebrews 6, because any message on hope should at least reference Hebrews 6, and then come back to uh, Psalm 119 in these four sections. We hope that will not be impossible. Hope must be grounded in something better than that. So turn to Hebrews 6, and the reason that we're going to Hebrews 6 is I want you to see three things here. Number one, the great priority of hope. Uh, number two, the basis of our hope. How important that is. If you don't know what you're hoping in, or if you're hoping in the wrong thing, then hope is always disappointed. So the priority of hope, the basis of hope, and then the power of hope from Hebrews chapter 6. So let's just start here in verse 11 of Hebrews 6. This is the writer writing to vulnerable Christians filled with doubt and double-minded hearts. He says this, And we desire, that word desire in the plural um, is, 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 is a compounded, intense desire. This is a strong, strong desire. This is the highest priority. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. My highest desire, my greatest desire is that you would work for hope, that you would give all diligence to have hope. And then he defines, that's a helpful definition of hope here in this passage, the full assurance, fully assured 
That is, as one looks forward, they are completely confident. Now, you may have thought of hope as sort of a a female kind of a trait, you know, a a hope chest where females imagine and dream and, and men do. Brothers, hope is the manliest of traits. As it looks forward, it knows where it's going. There's a full confidence that this is where we're heading and we're going to get there. Have you ever seen uh, two canoes side by side in a raging river approaching rapids? And the first canoe is anchored uh, or yeah, anchored by a novice. And the second canoe is anchored by a, a, a guide who is experienced and has been through that river hundreds of times. Is there any difference? Well, of course there is. One ends in panic and over and overturning the canoe, and the other is waving and laughing as they go to, as go down the river. They know where they're going, and so they approach the rapid, which could be dangerous, with full confidence, because we know where we're going. We know how to get there. This is what he's saying: You must work for this. You must strive for this full assurance of hope to the end. Why? Why is this the prayer? Why is this the priority? Well, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Two things here. What does hope do? Number one, hope cures spiritual sluggishness. The loss of spiritual motivation is deadly. And yet, it's prevalent, isn't it? Past failures, present situations that we don't know how to navigate, a bleak future. I'll be 50 in a couple of weeks, and that means that my bucket list is getting smaller and smaller. What's next? I've already done it all. Sluggishness will kill you. And he says, hope will kill sluggishness. Secondly, he says, hope produces trusting endurance. Trusting, determined endurance. Who through faith and patience. So, trusting endurance. This is the running back on the three-yard line who is held by 300-pound defensive linemen, and yet his legs just continue churning because his eyes can see that right there, three yards in front of me, is the goal line. And there's the promise that once I cross that goal line, no matter how hard it is, no matter how arduous it is, if I cross the goal line, I will score. My team will win. And so the legs just keep churning as unlikely as it is that a 150-pound running back can carry 300-pound men three more yards. He says, I can carry three more yards to obtain the promise. Verse 13 and 14 then turn from the priority of hope to the basis of our hope. Psalm 119 is about David's hope in the Word of God. And that is the basis of our 
hope. The basis of our hope is a promise. A promise made by God to Abraham. So the basis of our hope is in a promise made to Abraham and it is in the trustworthy uh, nature and character of the God who's making the promise. So you understand that? The promise, that the hope is in a word, a promise, and the hope is in the one who makes the promise. So a trustworthy promise maker and a sure promise. So as he comes here to talk about the basis of our hope, he brings Abraham and this promise that God made to Abraham into the story. So if you've read Hebrews 6, preachers love to preach from Hebrews 6. I hope you understand this. He doesn't bring Abraham into the story just as a random example of somebody who had a lot of hope and received a nice promise. So the point of this is not to say, be like Abraham, who had a great promise, and then he really believed in that promise, he hoped in that promise, and so try to be like him. That's a part of it. We should be like Abraham. But friend, this is not just a random example of a promise made. What he's saying here is that the hope, the promise that was made to Abraham is a promise made to you if you today are a believer in Jesus Christ. So Abraham's promise and your promise is one and the same. So the hope that is the anchor for every child of God, the hope that keeps you churning on the three-yard line is found in this promise that was made to Abraham. Okay? For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, this is the promise, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. So this is the promise that was made to Abraham years and years ago back in Genesis chapter 12 through really it goes through 22 here. And this promise that was made and then repeated Really what you have from Genesis 12 to 22 is this, is you have God making this promise and then in a very gracious way, repeating this promise again and again and just um, expanding on the promise again and again and again. And then you also see this promise seem to be in jeopardy at many points through the story because of the weakness of the human flesh. Abraham was a man like you. Okay? So this promise is made to Abraham, and the New Testament sums up the promise here in Hebrews 6, and then in Galatians 3, verse 8, and then in Romans 4. So let's just talk about the promise for a minute. Here's the promise, Hebrews 6. Surely, blessing I will bless thee. The repeat of the word blessing and the repeat of the word multiplying is just saying, this is real. This is real blessing. Wonderful blessing. Bountiful blessing. Blessing that you cannot imagine. Well, Galatians 3 helps us understand the nature of this blessing even more, the nature of this promise. Galatians 3 says that God preached the gospel to Abraham saying, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham, in you, in in you and in your seed. So coming from your loins, coming from your DNA, will be this seed, this man. And Galatians 3 identifies this seed as Jesus of Nazareth. So in Jesus, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This 
promise, this blessing is explained a bit in Genesis 3, I mean in Galatians 3, when he says this blessing will look like this. This blessing will look like the curse of the law being removed. You will be redeemed from the curse of the law because Jesus, the seed which will bless the nation, will remove the curse for you by being the curse in your place. And you will receive justification and the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Romans 4 just expands a little bit more, saying it this way. God made promise to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. What does that mean? That means that you get everything in Christ. So we are, we tend to hope for small things and to fix our gaze on smaller things. But here's how Paul would say to the Corinthians who were arguing about whether it's better to be a, a follower of Paul or a follower of Apollos or a follower of Cephas. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Therefore, let no man glory in men for all things are yours. Why? Because God promised to Abraham that you will be the heir of the world. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or death. How is death mine? Because in Christ, death is the, is the portal, not to the wrath of God, but death is the portal to the presence of God that will no longer be mixed with my dim eyes that can't see Christ as I would. So death is yours. And life. So the things that you were worrying about at four o'clock yesterday afternoon, he says, Mike said it a minute ago, these are yours. These are yours for your sanctification and for your glory and for your molding into the image of Jesus Christ. Or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ. Christ is God's. Hallelujah. That is the basis for the Christian hope. The basis cannot be if your hope is fixed on things working out for you at your job or you not getting a disease or you not getting into conflict or any of these other things, your hope will be dashed. But this is greater. This is greater than all that you can imagine. All is yours through Christ. Now, he then moves to the power of hope. The power of hope in verse 15. And so... Abraham, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, it's very important to understand where uh, the writer of Hebrews pulls in this story of Abraham. This, this episode in Abraham's life is pulled in not from Genesis 12 when he leaves Ur, but it's pulled in from Genesis 22. So he comes to Genesis 22, and in Genesis 22, what's happening is, is that Abraham's son Isaac is bound by a rope that Abraham had bound him with. Now, who is Isaac? Isaac is the embodiment of the promise that God had made. So this promise has been made and repeated and repeated from your loins. Well, does that mean Eliezer, my servant's loins? No, it means your loins. 
Does that mean through Hagar? No, it means through Sarah. So it's not Israel. But, but God, I'm 99 years old. And my wife's 90. There's some stuff that's past. No, from Sarah. And then Sarah conceives and Isaac is born. And now Isaac, the embodiment, not the fulfillment, but the embodiment of God's promise of the inheritance of the world is bound on Moriah by Abraham's own hands. And Isaac lays vulnerable as Abraham has a knife. The point is pointed towards Isaac's chest. And God said, and the Hebrew says, he patiently endures. How does he do that? Here's the power of hope, friends. The power of hope is that what has been said, what has been promised, trumps everything that you're seeing. My son is bound. The knife's in my hands. What has been said trumps everything that you're seeing, that you're feeling that you're experiencing and continues. And you know what became more believable in Abraham's mind uh, than, oh no, my son's about to die? Abraham says, you know what may happen? Resurrection. Where had Abraham ever seen resurrection before? What did the idea of resurrection pop up in Abraham's mind? The idea of resurrection came to Abraham because God's promise was so sure that either his son was going to be spared or somehow God was going to raise his son up from the dead because God's promises are even more sure than this knife plunging into my son's chest and my son stopping breathing. It's that sure. And so it patiently endures. That's the power of hope. And so the writer was going to say, listen, you have a hope that's even greater than just the promise of God. The promise of God has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not just the embodiment in Isaac, but the fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus has, and Jesus has already entered the veil. In other words, Jesus, he says, you must look at the location of Jesus right now. Jesus came to this earth. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Isaac didn't die. But Abraham's hope was fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus did die and he rose from the dead and Jesus now has ascended into heaven as a great triumphant victor and he is at the right hand of God. He's broken through the veil and so therefore you have an anchor of the soul if you'll flee to Jesus Christ to lay hold, to seize upon this hope that's in Jesus. So Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the hope. Now, Turn to Psalm 119. Four sections here. Brothers, you must have hope. You must fight for hope. Psalm 119. Four sections. The first one is verse 49 through 56. And I want you to place your, just place your eyes on this passage if you haven't turned to it. And I'm going to call this, this section, a portrait of an anchored man. So a man who's anchored in hope. And by the way, let me just, as you're turning there, I'll just reference to Hebrews 6. We think of an anchor 
think of a ship, and this anchor sinks down from the ship, descends by its weight in the water, and latches onto something that is solid under the surface to keep the ship from being, from swaying and being tossed in the storm. This is wonderful, but this is different in Hebrews 6. Notice that the anchor goes up. Isn't that something? So it would be, you know, a, 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 an anchor down to the earth is great, but it's still going to move, possibly. But this is anchored up in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? This anchor rises up into the throne room of heaven where Jesus is. It's a sure anchor for your soul. Here's a portrait of a man who's anchored. His hope is fixed upon God and on the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 49 through 56. Put your eyes on this, and I'm just going to sort of give you a description as we move through here. The first thing he says and is, is <laughs> this is, sounds like the Lord remember me. Listen to what he says. He says, remember, or please remember the Word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Lord, please don't forget what you said. Please don't forget your promises in Christ. Please don't forget the word that you've spoken to your servant because it causes me to hope. Now, here's a portrait of this man. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. It's a familiar passage, but what a, what, what a statement. Here's what he's saying. In affliction... In the middle of the fire. Are any of you in affliction this morning? Brother Lewis is going to think about affliction here in a few minutes. In affliction, I find comfort in life. That's a, a remarkable statement. Here's what it's saying. The, the affliction, the affliction is not shaping me. The affliction is not molding me. How many people do you see in the middle of affliction? They change completely. Because the affliction is so intense, they begin to change what you would expect them to be as Christians, right? He says, in the middle of affliction, you know what shapes me? The Word of God shapes me. The Word of God molds me. I can see clearly I am enlivened. Verse 51, the proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. Another way to say the same thing is this, under great criticism... I am undeterred and stable. How are you under great criticism? Are you stable? Are you undeterred? Are you unmoved when you are under withering criticism? Verse 52, I remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. I am able to control my emotions. I'm comforting myself because I'm fixed upon your word. Brothers, are you able to control your emotions? Mike talked about that. This man who's anchored in hope is able to control his emotions because he's remembering the judgments of God. He's comforting himself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. This sounds very different than where iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold. So we live in a culture, society, where many are forsaking the law of God. The law of God is an afterthought or if, or is no thought at all in the, in the thought of our culture. 
It has no power, it has no impact. But for this man, for David, he says, when I see the wicked take my law, I am offended. It's a horrible thing to me. Where are you, brothers? Are you anchored in hope? How is the culture? How are you responding to the culture? Are you being assimilated? Or are you anchored in hope? I love verse 54. Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I am still able to find joy because I understand where I'm headed. I'm on a pilgrimage. I love that. I know where I'm going. Verse 55. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night and have kept thy law. Lord, I am striving for obedience in the night. The night season can be a hard season, can't it? We have a lady who just lost her son and she just says the nights are really, really hard. The nighttime is a time where Men, boys, we're honest. It's the time of greatest temptation oftentimes, isn't it? For sexual sin, other sins. David's saying, but I'm anchored in hope. And so I am, I'm, I'm fixed on keeping the law of God. Even in the night. I'm remembering you, Lord, in the night. Then the last verse, sort of the bookend says, this I have, this I have, this I had, because I kept or I guarded thy precepts. So I'm anchoring my soul in the word of God and therefore I'm under, I'm under great criticism, but I'm not, I'm not deterred. I'm finding joy in the middle of this trial. I'm able to see clearly in the middle of affliction. I'm able to control my emotions. I am not moved by this worldly culture, but instead I'm offended by it. This I have because I'm guarding your word. It's an anchored man. Oh, that God would give us, that God would make of us anchored men. Men that are anchored in the word of God. Okay, let's turn now to verse 89. Verse 89. Verse 89 really represents the middle of the psalm. It's the center of the psalm. And, and really, its, its theme is the, the fulcrum upon which the whole psalm uh, works. So if the first section was a portrait of an anchored man, we're going to call this section anchored in the word or anchored in truth. I'll read just a, just a few verses. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Anchored in truth, anchored in the word. We said earlier from Hebrews 6 that the basis of hope is in the word that God has spoken and in the nature of the one who is speaking it. Notice how David jumps right into 
places its hope right on those two uh, related truths. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. He is meditating on the eternal nature of God. This eternal nature of God will give rise to the permanence and the strength, the power of God's word. Because God is eternal, therefore His Word will endure. So David is resting, he's meditating on the attributes of God. He starts by saying, forever, O Lord. The word Lord is in all caps. This is Yahweh, this is Jehovah, the the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, self-revealed name of God. This is the name of God. That when Moses, probably quaking in fear, is on the mount and he's been commissioned to this great task, he says, Lord, tell me, what should I tell the people? Who is it that has sent me? And God says, Moses, you tell them I am that I am. You tell them that I am hath sent thee. This is the Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This is the self-revealed name of God. This means that God, Yahweh, is the one unique Self-existent, independent being. So the question is, what gives rise to God? The answer is, nothing outside of God gives rise to God. The question is, what, what, what makes God continue? And the answer is, nothing outside of God contributes to His existence in any fashion. Nothing contributes to His sustainability. Therefore, he has no needs. He is fully and eternally satisfied in the Trinitarian relationship of Father and Word and Holy Spirit. So he has no need to be loved because he experiences perfect love in the Trinity. The prayer of John 17, I want them to see the glory that we had together before the world was. This expression of full satisfaction in the Trinity. He has no needs. He, he has no weakness. He has no fatal flaw. He is eternally the same. There is no declining source of power. No declining source of wisdom. No declining source of energy. He does not need reading glasses. He does not struggle to remember what he used to be able to recall very easily. He never has a need for a reset or for refreshment. All that he needs is self-contained within his being. Therefore, Now listen, the word therefore is very, very important for you to adopt. It really means so what? So if God is this self-existent being, if God is this eternally the same, so what? What does that mean? This is meditation, brothers. Meditating is asking, this is God, what does that mean? This is how we anchor ourselves in the word. Is by contemplating the being of God as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word and then following through with the rest of what that means. So here's what this means. Therefore, since He is a self-existent being, He is supreme over all creation. He is King. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. He is supreme. He is King. He is the sovereign Lord over all. His word, 
It's his purposes, his desires, his promises are, is fully settled. It's unmovable. It's unrelenting. It's under no jeopardy whatsoever. His decrees are eternally and fully settled. Listen to God in Isaiah 46. He's speaking to men like you and me. He says, remember this, God says, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind. Meditate on this. Oh, ye transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Only a sovereign king can say that and then back it up. Only an eternal, self-existent God can make such a declaration and then follow through on that. So David has a therefore to that. Therefore, in verse 91, David says, All are thy servants. It all belongs to you. It's all serving you. It's all fulfilling your purposes now, David brings in nature to this. So let's bring in nature for a minute. Nature displays that all are the servants of God. Psalm 148 says, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Brothers, nature's, this, this planet's continuance, its function, its harmony, even in a sin-cursed state, is because Yahweh is supreme and his word is forever settled in heaven. Seed time and harvest, Summer and winter shall continued, continue, continued by the word, the decree of Yahweh. But not just nature, David believed that his individual existence displayed that God was king. Acts 17, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He hath determined the times appointed for your life. He hath determined the bounds of your habitation. In you, we li- in him, we live, you live and move and have and, 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 and go. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. Here's what this means individually. Who you are, your place in history. People have to say, well, I, I was, I should have been born at a different time. Bah! It's the God of heaven. It's a creed for you to be born now and live now. Your place in history, the spot on the globe where you were born, your name, your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, your childhood friends, your teachers, the people who were in your life who influenced you, your friends, your date of birth, your marriage, or not being married, the day of your death, your sicknesses, your successes, your intellect, your hardships, your failures, the message that He has overruled and the message that He has let you live in is all because Yahweh is King. But even greater, the great decrees of salvation display this. Acts 2.23 
Speaking of Jesus, it says he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What a statement that is. Think of all that goes into that statement. That means that Christ was chosen. Behold mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Christ was chosen before time in this covenant relationship of the Godhead. Chosen and agreed to be, to serve as mediator and, and savior. That you were given, chosen and given to Christ in, and placed into his keeping before the world began. That you were eternally sanctified or eternally set apart for his use. For his glory. You were chosen to one day appear holy and without blame before this august God in love. The prophets prophesied long ago of that which was decreed even longer, longer ago of the Messiah, that the Messiah who would be son of God and son of man would come into history incarnate at just the right time in history. A certain time, a time the prophets even could prophesy of, of the time of his coming. He would be born of a virgin, but he would come meek and lowly with no place to lay his head, taking on the meanest form of a servant. But from an early age, he would wow the, the masses with his wisdom and righteousness. He would be rejected by his own people, by the great religious leaders of the, of the day. He would then be crucified. And he would die on a criminal's cross at the hands of Rome and the Jews, but they were his servants. Remember, he was delivered by the determinate counsel for knowledge of God. But he would be raised the third day, brothers. He would continue for a time on this earth to make it unmistakable that he had risen from the dead. Seen by over 500 witnesses. But then he would be received back into heaven. And that would be witnessed as well. Witnessed on earth as far as the eye could see him rise. And witnessed in heaven as the greatest coronation ceremony that has ever occurred took place. As Christ was received into heaven and the Father was pleased to place Him at His right hand in the highest place of royalty, the highest place of authority, the highest place of victory, and that He would from henceforth be waiting expectantly until all of His enemies would be made His footstool. That's where He is. But in accordance with His decree, the Spirit would bring you to that faith. You would be dead and live in trespasses and sins, but the Holy Spirit would invade your heart because He is King and all of His servants, that even your hard, dead heart was not enough to stop the Spirit's entrance and to change your heart and to change your life and to give you faith in Jesus Christ to cause you to love Him and to crown Him as King over you. You would be made willing in the day of His power, according to Psalm 110, because His Word is forever settled in heaven. And that here in life, He would sanctify you through some of the darkest trials we could ever imagine. Trials of fire. But those trials of fire have been specifically selected for you. To make you like Jesus. And when your time is finished, He would take you at the right time. And then one day He promised He would glorify your dead body 
that it, might, that it might be made like unto his glorious body, and you would reign with him as a full joint heir, the heir of all things, the heir of the world forever. This is all because Yahweh is king and his word is forever settled in heaven. Therefore, as the songwriter says, we can say no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Or as Paul said in Romans 8, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, hope is enlivened and empowered by its meditation on the Word. Brothers, this is doctrine. This is truth. And doctrine meditated on produces hope. Is there any power in what was just said? Is there any power to face the conflicts? To be filled with awe and be able to enter into the conflict saying, listen, I'm ready to confess my part. And my part really is the whole part. But I'm ready to confess because the power of Christ lives within me, and I understand that, that, that whatever grievance I have, as grievous as it is, I understand that that is being superintended by the one whose word is forever settled in heaven for my good, and it doesn't feel good at all. Brothers, you cannot expect to be anchored in hope without a vibrant immersion in the word of God. Let me just run through this quickly. There are two common uh, things I observe today I want to warn you against. Number one, the most obvious one, is just a superficial relationship with the Word of God. There are too many men who are living on memes and gifs. It's true. Some little nugget, they'll cast it out there on Twitter or cast it out there on Facebook and go, boy, I feel spiritual today. It's dead. It's superficial. A quick prayer, a quick reading, a drive-by meme. Listen, my soul needed to meditate on Deuteronomy 22 last night. What a God. And then it needed to be convicted by the idea that I'm nothing like God. I love to say, well, that's not my problem right now. That's not my, that's not my ox. Because if you want to be like your God, you drop what you're doing and you go help that ox get out. Even if you don't know the, the brother. Secondly, this is what I'm more concerned about with, with, uh, men especially in this very contentious climate that we're in today. It's what I'm going to, just going to call a, a, a YouTube Twitter warrior student. And I'm not being funny, I'm, I'm being serious. I, what I mean by that is there are all kinds of controversies raging about everything today. So you go to Twitter. You see, man, they're, they're, they're arguing about, you know, I'm going to pull out a topic right now. They're arguing about this, and you go, man, that's that, yeah, what, what's up with that? So you go to YouTube and you watch 50 YouTube videos, and then all of a sudden you're, you're relitigating doctrinal truth that has been settled in orthodoxy for a long time, things like the Trinity. 
And, you, and you're all upside down and upset and you think you're spiritual and you're not. Your soul is no more anchored in hope than it ever was, but you're on a warpath somewhere. Brothers, be careful of that. That's not what God is calling you. It's not an anchoring spot. Now, let's very briefly finish up. Verses uh, 113 to 120. I'm going to call this anchored in Him. I'm just going to read one verse from here. Anchored in Him. I'm going to read, um, I'll read verses uh, 114 through 117. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. I will have respect the statutes continually. I hope you got the flavor of that. In that section, David is, there's a, there's an expression of this very personal seizing of God. It's more than just his word or more than just facts, but the word is this entrance into the person. Thou art my shield. Thou art my refuge. Thou art my hiding place. If you don't uphold me, I will not be upheld. If it's not you holding me, I'm going to fall. There is, there is this intimacy and this love that's being expressed from David to his God that he fully has placed himself, his trust into the hands of this God. So I just want to tell you, brothers, Christianity is first experimental and then it's doctrinal. Those are not opposing things. They go together. But, 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 but Christianity is not just grabbing hold of some truth and saying, I stand on these truths. Christianity is first and foremost a relationship with the living God. This is so important in understanding anchoring our hope. Because when our hope is placed in Him and our delight is in Him and He is the treasure, well, it's like this. Hope generally waxes and wanes based upon whether we receive what we're hoping for or not, right? But when we have Him, hope is fixed. So Elizabeth Elliot tells a story of her early days in Ecuador when she was, uh, she had this burden, this is before she was married, this burden to translate the Bible, um, into the language of a remote Indian tribe. It was the Colorado Indians there in, in Ecuador. And so she began to, to plunge into the work. And she needed somebody who knew the language. And so she finally found this very faithful man who knew both Spanish, which she knew, and he knew the Indian, the Indian language. So they worked on it for months. And then one day, this horrible news came. This man had been shot and killed in this, um, in, in this it's sort of a ridiculous, sort of a thoughtless, useless killing. And she was devastated. And so she began to pray, Lord, send me somebody else. So the Lord sent her somebody else. This guy was a drunk. I think he was, I think he was sober for about an hour a day. So for that hour a day, they plunged into the translation. So for months and months and months, she worked on, you know, the syntax and the linguistics and all these things that I don't even know what I'm talking about, but she worked on it. And she built up this big volume, boxes and boxes filled with papers. And finally she came to the point where she said, we have enough and she's going to send it off to a bigger city where people could work with it and then figure it out and translate the Bible into the Colorado language. What a blessing that would be. Brother Titus just prayed, thank you for your word. The word of God reveals God. The word of God is good. God's word needs to go to all the nations. So she boxes it up. She puts it on 
this uh this this wagon or whatever it was, courier wagon heading back to the main city. And on the trip to the main city, the wagon was hijacked by robbers. Do you think they were interested in linguistic papers for the Colorado Indians? I imagine those boxes were thrown off as fast as they could go through and scattered to the winds. And that's the end of the story. There's no sweet thing about, yeah, but some Christians, some angel Christians fell from the sky. And the God stirred up a wind. And not only did, he, did all the papers come back into the box, they all came back into the box in order. That's, that's the end of the story. There's no pretty ribbon to tie on top. That's the end of the story. That's it. So the question she had to face, what she had to face is, Christ, are you enough? When all my hopes are dashed and nothing is working out the way that I want to work out, are you enough? Hope is anchored in the word, the promise, and the trustworthiness of the one who makes the promise. You see, the one who made the promise said, I will lose nothing. I will not lose one person whom I have given my son to care for, and I will raise him up the last day. Now, I can't figure out all that. It would have been, it would have been a wonderful thing for the Indians to receive the Bible. It would have been a wonderful thing for maybe for, for this lady in our church, for her son not to die, or for your wife not to get sick, or for you not to have this great conflict. It would be wonderful things if it were the case, but God is more trustworthy. Now, the last thing, I'm just going to say it in closing. Brother Lewis, I think we'll probably mention these verses. Verses 73 through 80, I'm going to call this the impact of an anchored man. Oh, brothers, I can tell you from the beginning of this conference, 10 years ago, what the hope was. The hope was not we just have a good time together. That was the hope. But the end goal was that Gradually, slowly, day by day, week by week, as men are immersing themselves in the Word of God, that you are leading your families, that you are leading your churches, and that you're leading your communities as, as you follow Christ, you want people to come right behind you in following Christ. We can't do it alone, and we're not sufficient for these things. But God has called you, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer today, God has called you to be a leader. You should care. Deeply about having an impact. Listen to this. Verse 74. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. It's good to see you guys. It really is. When I see a guy who has endured to and not attained it yet, but he's enduring Sometimes in darkness, he's still enduring, running toward, churning the legs toward the promise through terrible affliction. Do you know what it does for my soul? Right? I'm glad. One more. Verse 79. Uh, verse 79, I think. Yep. Let those that fear thee turn unto me and those that have known Thy testimonies. Here's a desire that may sound prideful on the the front end, but it's not. So Lord, I'm going to show some people some things. 
I want to have an impact. I want those who fear you to turn to me because they believe I will have some wisdom to help them with. Because I've hoped in your word. Can you imagine what that would do to a church? When men of hope have younger men or maybe even peers struggling through whatever, turning to them, coming to them, glad to see them, and then coming for help. That's an anchored man, brothers. He's not so strong in himself. He's running to God as his refuge. But he has an amazing strength, doesn't he? Because he's anchored in the Word of God. May God bless these thoughts to your benefit.